Book of Mormon tells a most remarkable story about a father who loved his son so much that he gave him his own name. The father was a great high priest in the land who spent much of his days administering to the spiritual needs of the people. How disappointed he must have been when his son chose not to follow his teachings. As any righteous father, he pleaded with the Lord for a change to come in the life of his son. In answer to his prayers, an angel of the Lord stood before this young man and said, Behold, the Lord God hath heard the prayers of his people, and also the prayers of his servant Alma, who is thy father, for he has prayed with much faith concerning thee, that thou mightest be brought to a knowledge of the truth. The scriptures record how the prayers of a righteous father had been answered. History attests to the power of righteous leadership in the home. I want to direct my remarks today to just a portion of this vast congregation. I want to speak to you who bear the great and noble titles of husband and father. I find myself greatly concerned with what I see, what I see about me. Man, woman, young adult, youth and child, all groping to find their identity in a troubled world. I stand before you today to accuse many of the husbands and fathers who are in the sound of my voice and throughout the world of failing in their two major God-given responsibilities. The reason for most of the problems we find in the do uh, world today must be laid at your door. Divorce, infidelity, dishonesty, use of drugs, deterioration of family life, loss of identity, insecurity, unhappiness have resulted from your lack of leadership in the home. Husbands and fathers, could we again remind you of your role and your responsibility? First as a husband, the first instructions given to man and woman immediately following the creation was, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So God in his divine plan ordained that marriage was to bring about the basic organizational unit, the family. The role of the husband and wife was clearly defined from the very beginning. In the Lord's plan, these roles are unchanged and eternal. A prophet has said of womanhood, a beautiful, modest, gracious woman is creation's masterpiece. To safeguard this masterpiece, the Lord has given to man the duty and responsibility of being the provider and protector. Husbands, if the Lord's plan is to work, you must learn how to perform in the leadership role he has designed for you. Could I remind you of some of these requirements? First, let me tell you an experience related by Emma Ray McKay, the wife of President David O. McKay. Last summer on reaching Los Angeles, we decided to have our car washed at one of these quickies on Wilshire Boulevard. As I watched the last part of the operation from a bench, to my, to my surprise, a tiny voice at my elbow said, I guess that man over there loves you. I turned and saw a little curly-headed child with great brown eyes who looked to be about seven years of age. What did you say, I asked? I said, I guess that man over there loves you. Oh, yes, he loves me. He's my husband. But why do you ask? A tender smile lighted up his face, and his voice softened as he said, 
because of the way he smiles at you. Do you know, I'd give anything in this world if my pop would smile at my mom that way. Oh, I'm sorry if he doesn't. I guess you're not going to get a divorce, he questioned. Of course not. We've been married over 50 years. Why do you ask? Because everyone around here gets a divorce. My pop is getting a divorce from my mom. I love my pop, and I love my mom. His voice broke, and tears welled up in his eyes. But he was too much of a little man to let them fall. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Then he came very close and whispered confidentially in my ear, You'd better hurry out of this place, or you'll get a divorce too. (laughs) Husbands, are your actions at all times a reflection of your love for your wife? If that had been you at that car wash, would that little boy have noticed the same tender love in so much in abundance? Now, second is your responsibility in providing peace and security in your home. It is your duty to provide adequately for your family. You must prepare yourself for this responsibility and have the ambition to see that it is accomplished. Your wife, so long as she is on this earth, should have the comforting assurance that so long as you're healthy and well, you'll take care of her first and above all others. She should not be forced into the labor market unless you become incapacitated. She must be allowed to fulfill her role as the Lord intended it for her. Third, it is a a 24-hour-a-day job to show appreciation and consideration for her. The Lord has warned you in the scriptures by saying, We have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men, as soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, long-suffering, by gentleness, by meekness, and by love unfeigned. She is not your chattel. She is not required to follow you in unrighteousness. She is your wife, your companion, your best friend, your full partner. The Lord has blessed her with great potential, talent, and ability. She, too, must be given the opportunity of self-expression and development. Her happiness should be your greatest concern. Learn how to magnify both of the roles in order that husband and wife can be found having fulfilling and happy lives together. Brethren, your first and most responsible role in life and in the eternities is to be a righteous husband. Now second only to the title of husband is that of father. Next only to eternal life, the greatest of all gifts that our Father in heaven can bestow on man is the opportunity of being blessed with sons and daughters. Every healthy and normal son of God should have the joy of bestowing the following gifts on his children. First, an honored and respected name. I'll be eternally grateful to a father who thought enough of me to give me his name. It was a name of honor and respect in the community in which I grew up. It carried before it the title of bishop from the time I was six months old until just before I left to go on my mission. How proud I was of his service. I was pleased that he had the patience to involve me in his responsibilities, working on a welfare farm, cleaning a chapel, balancing the ward's financial records, carrying a sack of flour to the widow, etc., were all part of my early life. I was with him so much I received the nickname of Bishop. I attempted to wear it with pride and honor. It had the effect of making me reach a little higher. 
I wanted to try to be on the same plane as my father. Should not every child have such an opportunity? Fathers, is it not your obligation to give your children an honored and respected name? Second, every child needs a sense of security. I often think of the security of our old family home. It was a fortress against the adversary. Each morning and evening, it was blessed by the priesthood as we would kneel in family prayer. That power was also manifest as my father blessed his family in time of need. Fathers, is it not your obligation to give your children a home blessed with the power of the priesthood? Third, an opportunity for development. My children taught me a great lesson one day. We had moved from California to New York where I'd accepted an employment opportunity. And we were in the process of finding a new home. We started close into the city, but as each day that passed, we moved further out to find a home more suited to our needs. In Connecticut, we found just the one. It was a beautiful home, nestled in New England's radiant forests. We were all pleased with the selection. The final test before making an offer for purchase was to ride the train into New York to check out the commuting time. I made the trip and returned very dis discouraged. The trip required an hour and a half each way. I returned to the motel where my family was waiting for them, for me, and gave them a choice of having a father or the new home. Much to my surprise, they said, we'll take the home, you're not around much anyway. <laughs> The shock of that statement was overwhelming to me. If their statement was true, I needed to repent fast. My children deserved a father. Is it not your obligation as fathers to spend as much time as possible with your children, to teach them honesty, industry, and morality? Now, fourth, give your children the opportunity of having a joyful happy childhood. The priesthood manual a few years ago quoted a story written in 1955 by Brian S. Hinckley. It is as follows. 326 school children in a district near Minneapolis were asked to write anonymously just what each thought of his father. The teacher hoped that by reading the essays it might attract the fathers to at least one parent and teachers association meeting. It did. They came in $400 cars and $4,000 cars. Bank presidents, laborers, professional men, clerks, salesmen, meter readers, farmers, utility magnates, merchants, bakers, tailors, manufacturers, and contractors. Every man with a definite estimation of himself in terms of his money, his skills, and his righteousness. The president of the PTA picked at random from a stack of papers. I like my daddy, she read. The reasons were many. He builds me a dollhouse. He took me coasting. He taught me how to shoot. He helps me with my schoolwork. He takes me to the park. He gives me a pig to fatten and sell. The essays were reduced to, I like my daddy. He plays with me. Not one child mentioned his home, car, neighborhood, food, or clothing. Fathers went out of that meeting in two classes where they came in from many walks in life. Companions to their children are strangers to their children. No man is too rich or too poor to play with his children. Now I'm aware how concerned each of us are today about the leadership we find in the world to change the head of a nation, state, or community towards righteous leadership may require our earnest efforts for years. But there is something we can change today to make the world a better place in which to live. Husbands and fathers, the power is within you as bearers of the priesthood. Enjoy the inspiration of God, our Eternal Father, to lead, guide, and direct you 
in leading your families in righteousness. You stand at the head of the only organization I know anything about that has promised to be eternal. Should not that charge and responsibility of being the head of a household receive your top priority in life? God bless you to understand your duties and responsibilities, to become righteous husbands and fathers. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, I would like to dedicate the following words to a certain category of men and women in the Church. We do not talk too much about them, maybe because they don't say too much, maybe because there is a bridge too far. You can and will meet some of them today, tomorrow, and every day of your life. They live among us. Just now, we have about 50,000 parents, 100,000 grandparents, and many thousands of brothers, sisters, cousins, and friends who will be concerned with them soon. In fact, we're all concerned with this group. We call them the return missionaries. I have a letter here with me that I was going to mail to one of them. May I share it with you as a tribute to missionary work, but especially as a reminder of our responsibilities towards our return missionaries. Before I read it, you may know that the personages of this letter, as well as their characters, are not imaginary, and that their resemblance with anyone real, living or dead, could, after all, well be a coincidence with many other returned missionaries. Dear Elder Brown, you will certainly not mind if I still call you Elder, won't you? This is the name under which I started to know you, and it will be associated with that way in my mind forever. Do you remember? It was that hot summer afternoon, you were pushing your bicycles towards the hill where we lived. We admired how you could put up with the heat with your white shirts and your ties. For two or three days, we had noticed how you literally flew down the hill. And when you rang the bell of our home, all of us, the four children, rushed to the door to know who were those young furniers and what they were doing in the neighborhood. You came in, and we offered you some ice-cold tea. You refused politely by saying that you were not thirsty. <laughs> what a pious excuse for missionaries, as I learned later who you were and the purpose of your visit. It took us some time to realize what you were talking about. First, the strong American accent, and then when you showed us what to start with, pictures of Indians, pictures of ruins of South America, and even some handmade copper plates bound with three rings. We felt quite like Christopher Columbus when he discovered the New World, a strange but exciting discovery. We became rapidly good friends as your visits became more frequent. You were preaching the message of the restoration of the gospel, and we were learning English in school. We both had our personal motivations to see each other. It was not difficult to teach us also some English, and especially to say, I love you. You were a living example with your companion. We loved you. One day we learned that you were leaving the city. This you called a transfer. It was the right word. We had to transfer our love to a new companion. Soon we follow, followed his teachings and example, but you were the first, and you remained so in our minds. 
We also learned that your mission was for two years, and of course, you promised when you left that you would send us news. Indeed, we received one short letter two months later. There was also a picture with it. All was well, but it took us a little time to recognize you. Oh, not because of the horse that you were riding instead of your bicycle in the mission field, not because of the cloth, but rather because of the sideburns and the length of your hair. We smiled about it, as we thought perhaps that you were trying to recreate the legend of Buffalo Bill. <laughs> we did not know that leaving the mission field also meant that you abandoned some of the characteristics that made you so special to us, and one of the reasons why we invited you into our home. You were so different from the world. Why was it so difficult to remain different? We were anxious to receive the next letter. We grew in the church, were baptized one after the other, and learned very soon of the importance of temple marriage. Some wedding cards arrived in the meantime from some of your companions. We rejoiced every time, just looking at their picture, and we could feel their happiness. Yours never came. We did not dare ask you why. Some time passed. I had my first opportunity to come to Salt Lake. I was finally going to see all the things that you had been talking about, or should I say, bragging about. That's another word of vocabulary that I learned from you. Would you believe me if I told you that I was not surprised when I saw the city? You revealed so much, with such an enthusiasm about the valley, the tabernacle, the temple, the members, so that I already had a vision in mind of what to expect. I had envisaged even Brigham Young entering the valley and saying, this is the place. Now the vision became a reality, in the same way that you explained the first vision of Joseph Smith and what it meant to the world and for myself. Of course, we wanted to visit with you. We still had a vision of you, Elder, smiling and testifying with tears in your eyes. I know what I say is true because I ask my Heavenly Father and, and I receive a personal answer. There are no doubts anymore. I have peace in my mind. I know that Jesus is a Christ, that Joseph Smith is a prophet, and that this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is the only true church and living church upon the face of the whole earth. I could not resist or deny your testimony because of the Book of Mormon. You spoke to my heart by the power of the Holy Ghost. I did not tell you how I felt this day. These are things Sometimes we do not like to talk about because of the sacredness of our feelings. But it was the beginning of a new life for me, with new objectives and a sure knowledge of the Church and of the truth. Yes, the day that we arrived in Salt Lake, we wanted to tell you, the same way you told us, that we also knew. We wanted to say, thank you, Elder. Thank you for what has happened in our lives because of your testimony. You prepared the way of the Lord. You made his path straight. Now listen. The gospel rolls forth until, unto the cities of your old mission. Zions are established in Europe. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let us share this joy together. We first met one of your former companions, we asked after you. There was a kind of hesitation in his voice, and he seemed embarrassed, but finally admitted that you were working in a gas station and that you would probably not be coming to a general conference or even listen to it. You were not, as we say in the church, very active. 
meaning that you were not living an, anymore the principles that you preach us some years ago. We decided immediately to see you. We drove in front of the gas station and stopped. We were looking for you. And as you saw us and realized who we were, there was a kind of hesitation. I could detect panic on your face, and I smiled as you were trying desperately to hide a cigarette that started to burn your fingers. We shook hands, asked about your wife, your children, your life, your future. Something was missing. You knew it, and we knew it. We left, a last look through the window, a last wave of the hand. Today I'm in Salt Lake again, and I'm writing this letter with the hope to reach you. I do not know where you are. I drove in front of the gas station, but you were not there anymore. Where are you, my brother? I hope that you will not mind if I recall some of the souvenirs of what you always referred to as the best time of your life. Why can't it be the same, t the same way today? Why should the best time always refer to yesterday instead of tomorrow? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a gospel made of souvenirs. It is a gospel presented to us so that we may live it today in order to know where we will be tomorrow. Alma bore his testimony of it in these words. For behold, this life is a time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And now, as I said unto you before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech you that ye do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness wherein there can be no labor performed. Dear Elder, you said one day in a conference that mothers can give birth to spirits, but missionaries can give eternal life to people. I recorded this as well as your testimony that day. The words of our Savior Jesus Christ are also recorded, that we may not forget that because of his sacrifice we may repent of our errors. Didn't he declare to the Nephites, Behold, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end, and ye shall live. For unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. Behold, I have given you unto you the commandments. Therefore, keep my commandments. And this is the law and the prophets, for they truly testify of me. You have opened the gate to many. Why? Why do you close it for yourself? May I put my foot in the door, as you once did in mind? Reach out your hand while there is still time, and let us tell you that we love you. Your bishop is waiting for you. Your home teachers are caring for you. Your missionary companions do not forget you. But more than that, we, we need you. Come as you are. Our arms are open. We're waiting for you. Now the time has come to leave. But you should know that what you once were, you can be again. May my testimony help you, you as yours did for me some years ago. I know, by the power of the Holy Ghost, the spirit of revelation, I know in my mind and in my heart that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, our Redeemer, that we have a living prophet today, Spencer W. Kimball, and that by following his directions and advice, that we can come closer to our Heavenly Father and repent of our sins. My prayer is that you may realize this again in your own life 
and make a new decision to be one of his disciples. In the name of Jesus Christ. On this occasion, I speak with a profound desire that what I say will in some way help us to gain peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. All men are brothers in the Spirit. The Tower of Babel had no effect on the language of the Spirit. Therefore, if I speak by the Spirit and you will listen by the Spirit, the weakness of my spoken word will be transcended and we will understand together. I'm not a scientist, but this I have learned since those first totterings and falls as a babe, that the law of gravity exists. I have never seen gravity, only its effects. Even so, it is obvious to me that it is in all things, that it is above all things, below all things, round about all things, and that all physical things are held in their positions and controlled in their sphere by this law. The law of gravity has its limits and conditions. All of the inventions and movements of man take into account these conditions. If a man falls from a high place, he must descend. It matters not his motives. He may have jumped, or it might have been an accident. It matters not, for the law of gravity cannot be frustrated, and so he must fall and suffer the destructive consequences. Men who jump from airplanes have discovered a saving law. It is called the parachute. With proper study and application of this law, man, falling through space, can be saved. If a man jumps from an airplane without a parachute, he must fall to his destruction. It matters not that he knows the saving law of the parachute. If he does not have one on and open it as he falls, he will not be saved, for the law of gravity cannot be defied. By this we can clearly see that not only the knowledge of a saving law is necessary for salvation, but also the application of it in our lives. Consider what would happen if the law of gravity were suspended from over the face of the earth for 20 seconds. An awesome thought, isn't it? considering that it would cause the total disorganization of all things that exist here on. No, I'm not a scientist, but I know like you that gravity is in all things, above all things, and that it surrounds all things. I have never seen it, but I have seen and felt its effects. There is another law of which I will speak. It is a greater and more encompassing law than gravity. In fact, the law of gravity is only one among a totality of laws encompassed within it. It is the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have never seen this law, but like gravity, I have seen its effects and felt its powerful influence in my life. This is the law of the Son of God, even Jesus Christ the light and the redeemer of the world, the spirit of truth who came into the world because the world was made by him, and in him was the life of men and the light of men, and the worlds were made by him. Men were made by him. All things were made by him and through him and of him. He would have us know that that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. But he adds this stern caution, that that which breaketh a law and abideth not by law, but seeketh to become a law unto itself and willeth to abide in sin and altogether abideth in sin, cannot be sanctified by law, neither by mercy justice nor judgment, therefore they must remain filthy still. He comprehendeth all things, and all things are before him, and all things are round about him. 
and he is above all things and in all things and is through all things and is round about all things and all things are by him and of him even God forever and ever. Suppose the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ were suspended from over the face of the earth for 20 seconds. An awesome thought, isn't it? Considering that all other laws, even the law of gravity, are encompassed within this all-inclusive law and that it would cause the instantaneous disorganization of all that exists here on. But the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ will not be suspended from over the face of the earth because the works and designs and purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. And so that which is governed by law will continue to be preserved by law, and that which will not obey the conditions of law will not be justified in salvation. Jesus Christ hath given a law unto all things, by which they move in their times and seasons. And unto every kingdom is given a law, and unto every law there are certain bounds and conditions. All beings who abide not, those conditions are not justified. The law of the gospel of Jesus Christ has decreed that every man must repent and be baptized by immersion after the pattern of the lawgiver, or he cannot be saved. Is a man therefore justified if he holds himself outside the conditions of this law? Parents are required by the law of the gospel to teach their children to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and pray and walk uprightly before the Lord and to bring them to the waters of baptism at the age of accountability. Wherein, then, is the justification for the parents who practice abandonment of this sacred law? And as though it were the accepted thing to do, abdict their would-be thrones, whereon had they been faithful and obedient, they might have reigned as gods with their own children as the princes and princesses of their kingdom. As a binding clause of the law the Lord has commanded, Send forth the elders of my church unto the nations which are afar off, unto the isles of the sea. Send forth unto foreign lands. Call upon all nations, first upon the Gentiles and then upon the Jews. Will it therefore be justified for any who are these designated elders to put self before the law and shirk the clarion call from the prophet, who is the mouthpiece of God, who would send them out empowered to teach a falling world the saving laws of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what of those called to prepare them for their hour of departure, if they are not faithful in their charge? Saddest of all, perhaps, are those who will not study the law of the gospel contained in the Holy Scriptures. They are like the optimist who, having fallen from a high building, said as he passed each window, So far, everything's all right. Or like the man sliding down the roof saying, Help, Lord, I'm falling. Help, Lord, I'm falling. Never mind, Lord, I'm caught on a nail. We could talk about the law of sacrifice and service to one another, moral cleanliness, tithes and offerings, honesty. Indeed, we could review all the many laws that together comp comprise the law of the gospel. But perhaps enough has been pointed out to draw focus on their exactness the protection and salvation they provide us if we obey, and the serious consequences for noncompliance. Now, my beloved brothers and sisters, does the law of gravity exist? Does it have effect in your life? 
If you jump from a high place, will your body not fall? Can you defy gravity? Can you step outside of its control? Does the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ exist? Does it have effect in your life? If you disobey its limits and conditions, will your spirit not fall? Can you defy the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can you step outside of its control? Oh, that man could really see the glories of eternity and marvel at the things he saw encompassed by eternal law, that he could somehow comprehend God's work from its beginning to its end, that he is in and over all, and those who heed him not must fall. For his designs and law profound is truth, and one eternal round, and although man may set it not, the holy laws which he has taught, and step outside their sacred bounds to follow after Satan's sounds, they must retrace the path they trod, or ne'er again return to God. The great overriding theme contained in the Book of Mormon, which is the law book of the gospel, is summarized by the ancient prophet Moroni who delivered them to us in this dispensation. It is, Come unto Christ, and lay hold upon every good gift, and touch not the evil gift nor the unclean thing that thou mayest no more be confounded, that the covenants of the Eternal Father which he hath made unto thee may be fulfilled. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. And again, if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then are ye sanctified in Christ, that by the grace of God, through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins, that ye become holy and without spot. May God bless you in your thoughts and actions, that they may ever be in tune with this holy law. I pray in the name of him who sitteth upon the throne and governeth and executeth all things even Jesus Christ. Amen. There are three things that I feel personally obligated to communicate with you, my brothers and sisters, this afternoon. First, I know the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and that only by carefully listening to the words of our prophet by reading the scriptures for additional insightfulness, and by living the commandments and suggestions of our brethren can we find happiness of an eternal nature. Second, I must communicate to you openly about the reality of my own inadequacies. In accepting the call to serve as a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy, I pray the Lord, our Church leaders who sit before us, and you with whom I'll be called to work, will all exert untiring patience with me. Lastly, I must communicate to you the awesome level of gratitude that I feel at this time towards you, who have so kindly instructed me through word and deed and action a lovely wife and children who have always supported their husband and father both here and in the mission field. 
a father and mother who never needed to worry about determining priorities because they understood that what was really important as easily as most of us find the act of breathing. Grateful for a sister and brother and for their families. I'm thankful for friends and associates who have been patient in their understanding of my weaknesses and of my lifestyle and other decisions that have been made, as hopefully as I was of theirs. So thankful to men like my mission president, A. Lewis Elgren, to other men such as President Harold B. Lee, and Elder Richard L. Evans, a great aunt, Bertha Irvine, and others who are no longer with us. So thankful to many of the brethren who sit here, whose constant example served as such a motivating force in my life and for so many others. And most of all, grateful for a kind and loving Savior who not only teaches us well, but forgives and loves and persists. Speaking for Anne, my wife, Larry, Annette, Marcus, Jonathan, Nathan, and Andrea, our children, we stand waiting to give all we have to the building of the kingdom and to hopefully make a supportful contribution wherever we might find ourselves. Henry Van Dyke said a number of years ago, there is only one way to get ready for immortality, and that is to love this life and live it bravely and cheerfully and faithfully as we can. This I pray we may all do. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Master. I am deeply touched by the spirit of this building. In the presence of a prophet of the Lord, in the presence of the members of the general authorities, and by your presence, I pray that I will find words to express my feelings in this moment. I've had many blessings in my life, spiritual blessings. I had good parents, good education, material blessings, like a good home, always enough to eat, always a bed to sleep in, and many, many other blessings. I had the opportunity in working in business capacities, in this capacity seeing the world, seeing many people, seeing many great people, having many opportunities, having had many opportunities. But the greatest blessing that came to me came through humble missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I want to express gratitude all what I have to this young man that came to our home. Not only that they came, but that they had love enough not to give up. I was very hard, a hard case. I have thought that through my education and through my background and my history, my family, that I would be superior. And I feel pity for the missionaries. I said, well, this fine young man with such a poor message, they didn't give up. They came again and again and again. 
and I felt an authority radiating through them that was stronger and more than all my knowledge I had in my previous life. The authority of true love of Christ. I want to thank, to give thanks to these generations of missionaries that did not give up and to the mission president that had concern enough not to withdraw the missionaries from me. It was Elder Theodore M. Burton. I will never forget that. I will tell you that I'm deeply convinced that this in my life is the most important blessing I've ever got. It changed my life totally. I began to realize that a man can know nothing important in this world unless he has got knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ restored by his prophet Joseph Smith and followed through by a living prophet Spencer W. Kimball. Without this message, I would not have a family like I have now. I would not have a love to my lovely wife as I have now. And I would not be able so, to be so pride, proud about my children. Our oldest son is now another young man serving as a missionary in Manchester, England. And we are so proud about him. And the second boy is preparing to become a missionary next year. And now this call, this is beyond understanding for a human being. I need all your prayers. But I promise to the Lord, when I came to the baptism fund and later in the temple, that he could count on me. And I want to tell to President Kimball that he can account on me. I have no other desire than to be a servant of the Lord. In his name, amen. Amen.